Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. And today I am joined by Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster and the Dynasty Guru. And tonight we are going to be, uh, well, first I should say tonight, yes, we are recording this uh, very late on Sunday night, almost Monday morning at this point. Um, and we're going to be talking about on this edition of the podcast how well the Red Sox have played over the last week. Uh, we're going to look at some of our favorite moments from those two series. We're going to talk about the Yankees starting pitching a little bit. We're going to talk about Red Sox um, being potentially big, big time buyers at deadline now. And then we're going to answer a bunch of listener questions, which sort of tie in to everything that we're going to be talking about with relief. So let's kick it off, Keaton, um, by discussing the amazing week that has been uh, the Red Sox this past week. Took two out of three from Tampa Bay in Tampa Bay. And then they just took three out of four from the Yankees at home. Um, you know, the the sweep was within grasp here. Um, they didn't get it, but really it was an incredible week of baseball for the Red Sox and one that put a pretty big exclamation point on the fact that they are probably going to be buyers at this point. You'd, it would be shocking if they weren't. But what were your favorite moments from this past week of baseball? If any, did anything stand out to you? few things just putting up a bajillion run on the yankees that was fun andrew kashner putting up an impressive performance getting through seven innings uh third time's the charm through the order with kashner here uh put up a pretty solid start there uh the starting pitching in general i mean sale kind of struggled tonight but over the past 10 days or so week but yeah, so I feel safe saying ten days has really kind of stabilized, and it they they finally went through one turn through the rotation with all five starters going at least six innings, uh, and it took 124 games into the season to finally get there, however many games, fourteen, where however far into the season it took way longer than it should have, but we finally got there, so it kind of seems like the starting pitching is starting to turn a little bit, so that is huge for how the rest of uh, the game ends up playing out for the bullpen. So I think that was my biggest takeaway was just that it seems like the starting pitching has finally started to turn the corner here. So that that's huge for them. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was massive and I agree that that 19 to 3 pounding of the Yankees was 
pretty damn cool. And and then to follow that up with scoring 10 runs and then nine runs against those guys uh, was pretty freaking awesome. But maybe the coolest moment for me of the week was Mookie Betts just single-handedly taking out James Paxton. Um, three home runs, five RBIs against Paxton. The, the Red Sox, you know, one of the big Achilles heels of this same group last year, and, and it has been true to some degree this year, they have struggled in the past, certainly against left-handed pitchers, and James Paxton's a pretty damn good lefty, and they took care of him this week. They did. The Yankees starters, and I'm going to just strongly to remember something that Nesson threw up, yesterday but it was something like over their last seven games the starters had gone through 24 innings were averaging three and two-thirds innings per start that's not gonna help they're not gonna win games that way and turns out they didn't so it's it's nice to see another team struggling with that issue that the red sox really have been struggling with like almost all year uh and you know couldn't happen to a better team yeah, yeah, it's it's always awesome to see the Yankees struggling. And we're going to talk a little bit more about their struggles going forward. Um, big takeaways, though, about the Red Sox, and I guess I'll kick us off here, is just that this offense has come alive in a way that um, it, it just it's been great all year, but it hasn't all been clicking at the same time. And one of the things I want to do right now is take a quick look over the last week at how the Red Sox have performed offensively. And and these stats don't include tonight's game um, yet. But um, two guys, two key cogs of the the offense have gotten super, super duper hot. Uh, And one of them is J.D. Martinez, who has a WRC plus over 200 over the last week of baseball. Andrew Benintendi, he actually leads the team with a WRC plus way over 200 at this point with today's game factored in. I don't know what it'll be at that point, but it's going to be somewhere around like 230-ish. So he's finally gotten hot, and that's to go along with Rafael Devers, who stayed hot, 186 over that stretch. Xander Bogarts, who had another three-hit night, his is somewhere around 160 right now. Uh, Mookie Betts at 150. And Sam Travis is even up there at 138. And Michael Chavis was hot over this stretch too, which he had been cold and struggling for a bit. He was at 188 coming into today. Um, Everybody in this lineup is hitting, but I think those two guys in Benintendi and J.D. Martinez, if those guys get going to go along with that top three, holy shit, man. We're we're seeing what the result is. Yeah, and never was that more evident then on Friday in the 10-5 win where uh, the top four in the order, uh, Benintendi was batting sixth, but we'll still dump him in there and say those five names really did all of the heavy lifting. They did all the work. They had 14 hits, and 11 of the hits came from those five, and they scored 10 runs, and uh, nine of the RBIs came from those five guys. Travis was the only one that um, outside of those five that had an RBI. They carried the team through that entire win. And when it starts with, um, you know, uh, Matt pointed this out on one of the locked ons earlier this week that when Betts is setting the table and getting things set up right, it trickles down through the rest of the lineup, through Devers, through Bogarts, through Martinez and Benintendi. And that's just continued. And with Betts now really back to his MVP form and slugging the crap out of the ball, 
it's, I mean, we pointed this out maybe like, I don't know, the first month of the year that the Red Sox offense tends to ebb and flow through bets. And as good as Devers and Bogarts have been, it still seems true that Betts is really the the cog that kind of lights it all on fire there in the leadoff spot. And through the first couple months, he struggled, and so did the offense. Uh, and now over the past couple months, he's righted the ship, and the offense has been the best offense in baseball by far. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that we looked for when we were talking about bets needing to improve throughout the year when when things weren't going so well, and things did get kind of bad for bets for a while. He had a stretch where he was like three for 24 or something ridiculous um, throughout this season. So he's had some stretches that are very uncharacteristic of Mookie. But a key characteristic of him during his slumps is that he just doesn't drive the ball. And this past week, he had three home runs. Uh, Andrew Benintendi himself, who hadn't been driving the ball, had three home runs. And then J.D. Martinez also added three home runs. So you're getting nine home runs within a week of baseball, the most important stretch of baseball that the Red Sox have played all season. And you're getting nine home runs from those guys to go along with three home runs between Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers. That's a recipe for just absolute success and you know the starting pitching was great but it didn't even need to be great with how the offense was operating um and when those two guys in in benintendi and bets are adding slugging to their game um i can't think of an offense in baseball that can even compare yeah i it was one of those things where you, you hear some of the like the keys to the game that um like every broadcast does them, and some of them are a little bit ridiculous. And tonight, A Rod had one for the Yankees was to get to the fourth inning, not down nineteen to three, was a key to the game. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's not wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the point was they need to have better starting pitching. And well, they they had that tonight, um, to an extent. The rest of the series was real bad, and. I'm I'm not worried about uh, one of the better parts too was they took care of this at home, which is some place that they've really struggled, yeah. which makes me feel even better about going on the road to play for in the Yankee uh, Yankee Stadium next weekend because the Red Sox have actually been a bit of a wagon on the road. So I'm not I'm not worried about that series the way that I was much more worried about this series, and then they were able to take care of business, get three out of four, feels good. This is kind of the past week is much more of the baseball that we expected from the Red Sox, and they've been able to make some huge strides here in the standings. And it's a much different feeling as we record now, having um, was it six and two, six five and two, and, yep, yeah, six and two here, um, rather than dropping no, five and two, yeah, yeah five and right. two, yeah. Rather than dropping two out of three to Baltimore, I mean, the listener questions that we were getting last week were basically people just begging to be talked off the ledge. And uh, big, big difference in, in confidence and attitude and just overall feel now just a week later. And, and this is really the, the, the Red Sox team that we expected to have. And it feels like this is the Red Sox team that we're going to have moving forward, which is a great sign. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that makes this feel better and feel more sustainable, too, is that 
both Mookie Betts and Andrew Benintendi can point to real things that they've changed over the last, I don't know, few weeks here, especially for Benintendi. It's been within the last week or week, week and a half or so. Uh, but Benintendi has tweaked his swing. They did a really good job of pointing out the changes that he made in his swing during Sunday night baseball tonight, um, sort of illustrating that. So he's, he's much more, um, he's keeping his head much more level. He's driving through the ball now. He looks more natural. It looks like the Benny swing that we remember from last year. And then Mookie Betts spoke at length uh, in an interview, and a bunch of the beat writers reported on this, about the changes that he's made too that sort of got him back to right where he was last year in terms of how he felt with his swing. And um, having those tangible changes to those two key guys really makes you feel like this is something that they can continue to carry. It's not just a flash in the pan. No. And I mean, those are guys that we've seen when they're at their best, how good this lineup really can be. And I mean, they were already well on their way to catching up to, uh, I think it was Minnesota at the time had the best uh, or the most runs scored uh, in baseball. And now that they got those two guys, hot they've just cruised past them and they are well beyond the rest of the league in terms of offense and it's probably going to be what's going to need to carry them as the starting pitching was better but still inconsistent uh and it's going to need to be a little bit more consistent to to have a a much better feeling about the bullpen as we go on but there's always the uh, the chance for a move at the deadline to help shore up the bullpen that'll make us feel a little bit better about that but I think they won't need to be perfect, the starting pitching, because the offense is so good. But the biggest thing is, uh, I mean, we talked about it almost the entire first half. We needed the starters to get deep into the game because the trickle-down effect that it has on the bullpen and just the morale, too, when, you know, Porcello gets spotted a six-run lead and then coughs it up. And then the bullpen isn't good enough to hold on to it, and they have to go like six innings in a game, and then it's just brutal. We're not asking them to be perfect. We're just basically asking them to get deep into a game, and the offense can take care of the rest from there, and that's exactly what they did this week, and pretty good results. Let's keep yeah, going. Absolutely. And, and after that result, um, where the Red Sox sit in the standings right now, they're 59-48. and 48. Uh, That's a 551 winning percentage. They're nine games back in the New York Yankees. Um, and just, just a half game back at the Tampa Bay Rays. And they're right in the hunt for the wild card spot as well. Um, they're one game behind the Oakland Athletics, who walked it off tonight um, for the second wild card spot, and three games back of the Cleveland Indians, who seem like they never lose anymore, although they did lose today um, to a bad team. But they're, they're right in the thick of things, and I think that what that does is it answers all those questions that we were getting last week about the Red Sox potentially being sellers because there was a really very real fear, I think, that uh, people were clearly having that asked us questions on the podcast last week about this team becoming sellers at the deadline. And we kind of talked that out of the way because it made more sense for the Red Sox to just stand pat if they started this week off poorly. But where the Red Sox stand now and after they've played this baseball, it makes so much more sense for them to explore being buyers. And in fact, I'd be 100% shocked if they didn't go out there and make a pretty big addition. And I guess we'll we'll get to this right now um, while, while we're talking about it. But 
Buster only had a tweet that I think excited a lot of Red Sox fans today. He said, there's confidence in the Red Sox organization that they can make an impactful deal before the deadline. And then he goes on to say, speculation. Edwin Diaz makes a lot of sense for Boston, not only for what he could add this year, but his minimal salary for this year fits in ownership's parameters. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about the fact that Edwin Diaz right now is pre-arbitration. He is going to make $607,000 this year. Um, that'll be prorated for whatever's left on his salary. So we're talking about, about $250,000 that Edwin Diaz is going to be owed for the rest of this season. And that would fit in neatly with where the Red Sox are in terms of the third salary cap threshold. And he would actually not put them over. So this is a really interesting name that um, Buster Olney and uh, Jim Bowden have speculated about um, that could be potentially available to the Red Sox. Yeah, I would be all for it. I know that he has struggled with the Mets, but we've seen him at his best, and his best is the best reliever in baseball. Um, doesn't walk anybody, gets a ridiculous amount of strikeouts. He's got great stuff. And for him to be cost-controlled for a very long time, if this is the buy-low opportunity from the Mets and who the hell has any idea what the Mets are actually trying to do, great. And it's interesting to, that they note the threshold, the luxury tax threshold piece of it, because on uh, WEI this week, uh, Dombrowski was talking to, um, I can't remember which show it was now, uh, but he had made mention specifically that they did not have, uh, or he did not have directions from ownership to stay under the threshold, and they if they need to go over to make a move, then... He's able to do that, which we've gotten real mixed messages on like all year. And so trying to read the tea leaves from that, I'm guessing whether or not they want to go over it really probably has more to do with how the team is playing. And if they think that they can actually contend and a week ago after um, squeaking by Tampa Bay and then dropping two out of three to the Orioles, they were probably feeling pretty shitty about it. And not feeling like they wanted to go over the threshold for a team that was just going to middle and not kind of get there and just retool for next year, which we went in depth on. Um, they're in a pretty good spot for that going next year on the last podcast. But now um, he was speaking on Thursday, so we were pretty deep into the run of success of this week and everybody's confidence had completely changed. So I'm sure they didn't have a problem at that point with thinking, hey, if we need to go over the threshold, let's go over the threshold because we're right there. We're playing as well as anybody in in baseball right now so it makes sense so we've heard multiple times they didn't want to go over it or that they were fine going over it i think it really has more to do with how the team is playing but more importantly in that interview he mentioned that he is a firm believer in having a closer and someone in the ninth inning role being the ninth inning person so that makes me believe that he's going to go out and get a closer because that's what he wants so we know that Cora likes the flexibility in the bullpen, and I think I'm completely fine with that. But I think you and I both agree that it makes much more sense to have someone defined as that ninth inning guy and then just be flexible with everybody else. You don't necessarily have to have, here's my eighth inning guy, here's my seventh inning guy, here's my ninth inning guy. But have someone who can dominate against lefties and righties, be that guy that you know is just going to be closing out the games no matter what the situation is, and then just pick and choose the matchups to bridge the gap from the starter to the end of the game. It just, it gives everybody much more confidence in how the game is going to play out. 
Uh, you don't have to, particularly with the players, kind of guess how things are going to go. Uh, it's, I mean, it plays with your head when you don't know how the end of a game is going to just fill out. But if you have someone you can always rely on, you know how it's going to end the game, then that's the, but that's the best way to go. I think um, if that's the direction, like Dombrowski, I'm assuming I'm taking him at his word, and he's not lying that he loves someone being in that closer role. And Diaz fits and wouldn't put them over that threshold that they they're not thrilled to go over, but will go over if they need to. Perfect sense for really every scenario that the Red Sox have, and I would love to see him as part of the Red Sox. Yeah, and I, I agree with everything that you said there. Um, and I think that one of the things that makes this so attractive is the fact that I think compared to other guys that they would be going after, like potentially other guys that could come in and fill the closer role in a similarly impactful way. A guy like a Kirby Yates comes to mind or a Ken Giles. I think that those guys are going to be extremely expensive in the same way that Diaz is going to be extremely expensive. And both those guys are having markedly better years than Diaz is this year. And I know that Diaz has been dominant in the past. I mean, when we're looking at his stats like last year, um, he had a 196 ERA the year before that, 327. The year before that, 279. This year, he's got a 495 ERA. Um, I, I do think there is a little bit of a buy low opportunity. And I think that if the, the cost of those guys, those three guys, is even relatively close, that sure, why wouldn't Dave want to kill two birds with one stone, stay under that threshold, not lose the picks? get the elite reliever who you're buying a little bit low right now. He's still 25 years old. The velocity on both of his pitches hasn't changed at all. He's really just getting killed by the home run ball this year. Um, He's 100% in his prime, and he's about to enter his arbitration years, so you're still going to have him for three more seasons, and you're not really going to care too much about his arbitration raises because we talked about it last week, how much money is coming off of the books. So... I love the idea of Edwin Diaz. I agree. And uh, over at the Dynasty Guru, we had Diaz ranked as our number one reliever coming into the year. So we were pretty darn high on him. And I'm not all that discouraged by how he's done with the Mets. Because like you said, the velocity and all that stuff is still there. His raw tools and all of that is still plainly visible. Um, He has struggled with some home runs, and I think that leads to... A slight buy low opportunity for a young flamethrower who's a great option at closer, and I completely agree. If the, if it's anywhere close between those three, I think it's a no brainer that it's Diaz because I think overall he has better stuff. He's younger and he has much more years of control, so we would be able to go into next year not trying to guess who the closer is going to be and doing this whole stupid committee thing again and being frustrated and wondering what they're going to do and then having a whole another year of talking about the bullpen because that's just great. You're telling me you don't like pulling up the ESPN closer chart and seeing Brandon Workman and Matt Barnes at the top of that list? I don't. Yeah, no, no it's not fun. Not, it's not thrilled. No, it's, it's not ideal. Um, but this brings us to basically all of the listener questions tonight. Not not every single one, but um, I'm going to 
bring up a bunch of these right now before we get into the the big thing here. Um, Red Sox on Bref, uh, who has been a, a dedicated listener of the pod, so we thank you for your question, uh, says is only out of line suggesting that the Red Sox could trade for Edwin Diaz. We have um, Andrew Ray, who says, who is the best reliever we can get with our depleted farm system? And then we have Matt Snow, who asks us, would you trade Chavis for a good reliever uh, with a few years of control? So the reason why I mention all three of these is because I think all three of these questions are kind of all tied together into what I want to talk about next, which is trading Michael Chavis as part of a package for Edwin Diaz. Um, if the Red Sox did decide to do that, he, you would be trading a guy who similarly like Diaz uh, has a lot of team control left, actually quite a bit more even because he's in his team control years before he even approaches his arbitration years. But I think the argument for trading a Michael Chavis um, is that you have guys who could conceivably step up and fill that void with a healthy Mitch Moreland at this point who can play first base. Sam Travis can platoon there as well. Um, and then you also have two options at second base in Brock Holt and Marco Hernandez who are hitting pretty well. And in the long term, I think there are a lot of questions about uh, Michael Chavis and where he fits long term. Is he a second baseman? Is he a first baseman? He's a little short for first. He's not quite the athlete that some of the other second basemen are. Um, I think he's fine at both of those positions. I do think there's a lot of holes in the swing still. We've seen him be exposed by elite velocity. Um, and, and all of this kind of goes to say that I don't think it would be the wrong move at all for Dave Dombrowski to sort of sell high after uh, Chavis has showed a lot in his major league debut because I think that what the Red Sox would rather do is they'd rather trade a guy like Chavis get a guy like Diaz, not have to worry about that position, lock him up, and then in the offseason, address maybe first base when Moreland and Pierce come off the books. Maybe you fill that void with a Jose Abreu or an, an aging player like that to fill the gap till a guy like Tristan Casas comes up. Um, you know, Scooter Jeanette's on the, the market next year for second base. There's a lot of options for those positions, whereas I think that there's not going to be an Edwin Diaz type player uh, coming up in the relief market. Boy, you laid that out pretty well. I like Chavis so much, though. <laughs> I know hurt. you do. That would hurt me so much. I was uh, I was a hard no, but I think you've pulled me a bit closer to being okay with that. I think I think I'm more of the mind that. I think I would be okay with it. And I'm mad at myself. <laughs> God damn it, Jake. So I mean, relievers do pop up all the time, but I guess if we're talking about, I think Edwin Diaz probably would be the only one because of the years of control and the youth and his stuff is better than the other guys. Like if we're talking about trading um, Chavis for someone like uh, Will Smith or Kirby Yates or Giles, I would say no. Right, but Diaz, I think you're right. I think that that would make sense, and that makes me sad. 
If you're looking at guys in his tier next year, just to give you some food for thought here, um, a guy like Kenley Jansen or Araldus Chapman, those guys are both going to be available um, in 2020. But at that point, they're going to be 32 years old. Do you really want to pay those guys what they're going to command on the market? I don't think so, right? No. I mean, they, um, Chapman has been terrible over the last month. He's kind of fallen apart. Jansen has a lot of injury issues. I wouldn't feel great about him um, knowing the issues that he's had. Which is no fault on his own. I think he's had two heart surgeries for regular heartbeats. I mean, that's tough. But uh, on top of that, he's had some uh, shoulder issues, I think it is. So that's there's a lot of issues with Jansen there. So I'm not looking to pay him a bunch of money with those injury concerns. And... I just don't like Chapman at all. Yeah, I, I just think that it's it's a little bit easier to find uh, good stop gaps at, at other positions. But it's an interesting question because Chavis has meant a lot to this team. But I think that as the team's currently constructed, that for the stretch run, I would much rather have Edwin Diaz for the remainder of this year than I would Michael Chavis. Because if you make that trade, you're bringing Marco Hernandez up. Uh, and you're just playing Brock Holt more. And I don't know that you lose as much as you gain with that trade. There's also the key factor that Dombrowski pretty much never trades anybody that makes it to the major leagues. It's like the when a turtle lays like 100 eggs on the beach just to, in the hopes that a few of them make it to the ocean. Like if you're a Red Sox prospect, if you make it to the ocean, then you're safe from Dombrowski's trades. But if you don't get there, you're gone. Yeah, uh, Dombrowski is a lot like a sea turtle. Um, I've always thought that. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Resemblance is uncanny. Yeah, um, but let's let's talk about some of the prospects that that might be available though. If if Dave Dombrowski wasn't going to trade a guy like Chavis, um, it would be really difficult for me to imagine how he would get a trade like this done. It would probably start with a package of somebody like a Bobby Dahlbeck, a Jaron Duran, and someone else who's pretty good um, from the low minors, like a Brandon Howlett or a Tristan Casas or something like that. It would be a substantial enough package that I think that it would hurt the uh, ongoing development that they have down at the minor leagues substantially. Yeah, that's my bold prediction for when we record this next week, or maybe even an emergency trade deadline pod if they do something wild. Uh, my bold prediction is that Bobby Zalbach will no longer be in the Red Sox organization by the next time we record a podcast. Okay, so you believe so you believe that even if like a Chavis was a centerpiece that Bobby Dahlbeck would be gone? Yes. I don't think that's unrealistic. Because I think it's going to... We should clarify that. If they do decide to trade Michael Chavis... For Edwin Diaz, it's not just going to be Chavis. It's going to be Chavis plus. There's also the possibility that if it's the Mets, it's Diaz and Wheeler. I guess so. Possibly. I'm not saying yeah. it's a high possibility. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Chavis, yeah. Dalbach, colored pieces. There you go. Could be. So that's, that's kind of where the Red Sox stand with that. But um, I want to touch on... Whose who's, uh, question I wanted to get to? Oh, yeah, I wanted to get to Ben Jacobson's question. He says, all right, so apparently we're good now. This begs the question, who should we trade to strengthen the pen? Um, 
there he he mentions uh, what would you be willing to give up? The market looking a little cheaper than originally expected with Romo and the Sparkman deals. Um, and I think this brings me to the idea of what other options do you see out there if the Red Sox decide not to make the big splash? They don't get Kirby. They don't get Giles. They don't get Yates. Um, I mean, I should say uh, Edwin. Kirby and Yates are the same guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do you think that they go after one of these second-tier guys, like a Daniel Hudson, someone in that vein? Yeah, I think they've already started to go after Daniel Hudson. Um, they were pretty heavily linked in his scouting and reaching out to the Blue Jays last week. So um, while we have speculated about Giles, I don't think that the Red Sox have really been linked to Giles, but they have been heavily linked to Hudson. So I think if they make a deal with the Blue Jays, it's more likely that it's Hudson instead of Giles. Um, I think that's probably, uh, I mean, of course, these things can always change and there's conversations happening all the time. But I think he's probably the most likely target if it's a swing and a miss on the, the upper tier of players. What about a guy like Shane Green? Because he's an interesting guy in that it seems like the Tigers asking price is in the level of some of the elite guys that we were talking about, whereas I don't really feel like Shane Green is truly an elite guy. No, I don't think he is either, and I think it's probably more to do with that he racked up like 20 saves in their first, whatever, like 30 games because the Tigers are bad. So when they were winning games, it was one to nothing. Right. So um, they were just giving him a boatload of save opportunities, so he racked up a whole bunch of saves and uh old school curmudgeons could point at that and say look look at all his saves he's so good when really it's the rest of the team is so bad not that he is a bad reliever he is a quality reliever but not in nearly the that same tier as the other guys you want to hear the most boring name that i've heard mentioned and linked to uh people predicting who the red Sox would potentially get i love boring names is it anthony Joe Kelly? anthony bass <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, actually, you know what? Um, what's his face? Amir Garrett apparently is being shopped around. He's going to be expensive. He's got a lot of control, and he's nasty. He does have a lot of control. That was actually a name that I was kind of surprised to see out there, but then again, I guess the Reds are not real heavy on the competing piece. So on, on the flip side of this whole thing... Um, you have the Yankees, and the Yankees are not going to be going away. This is one of the teams the Red Sox are going to have to deal with later in this season. I mean, they, they meet eight more times after this, um, and very well, depending on how the Red Sox and Yankees both play from this time out, that could decide a lot of things. But the Yankees' rotation has been an absolute dumpster fire. Um, Domingo Herman has been by far their best pitcher this year. Um, we saw him today. I was super impressed with the way that he pitched. Um, today I love his stuff but that still leaves uh, Masahiro Tanaka with a 479 ERA J.A. Happ with a 523 CC Sabathia who just went on the DL with a 478 James Paxton who I thought was going to have a great year with a 472 and, and Domingo Herman has a 408 at this point this is their best starter um, Severino is not going to come back as a starting pitcher he's going to come back as a reliever um the Yankees all of a sudden lost an option because the Mets 
did Mets things. Uh, we did get a listener question from Matt Kitson asking us, does anyone understand what the Mets are doing? Um, referring to this trade for Marcus Stroman, um, first of all, I have no idea what the Mets are doing. Um, I don't think anybody does. That's like trying to understand the brain of some, you know, strange creature. Um, but this takes a starting pitcher option off the market, and apparently the Yankees weren't willing to budge on Davey Garcia, uh, their young starting pitcher prospect, um, who's who's highly thought of and was in the Futures game. I don't blame them for not wanting to trade Davey Garcia, but where does this leave them for looking for starting pitching options at the deadline now? Yeah, I'm not surprised that they, did, they didn't budge on that. Garcia is pretty close. Uh, he just got promoted to AAA um, right after the All-Star game. And there's a pretty good chance that he ends up helping out in the bullpen by the end of the year. And then he's competing for a rotation spot as soon as next year. So I don't think they wanted to give him up because he's so close to helping them. So I'm not surprised that they uh, left a year and a half of Stroman on the table for six plus of Garcia in the very near future. Um, However... I'm not entirely sure where they go at this point. Um, I don't know what Cleveland is doing with Bauer. Uh, even though he threw a little hitsy fit on the mound today, I still, I mean, it wouldn't make sense for them to trade him because they're in the playoffs right now. Right. So I don't expect them to be sellers, even with all the rumors going around. I don't. I don't either. So that's probably off the table. So the next best option is Robbie Ray. And I have not heard, although, again, because these things change and fluid, I have not heard the Yankees linked to them at all, just out of, like, pure speculation because of need. But what I have heard is the Astros linked to Ray. And as a fan of baseball, I would love to see that because of what the Astros are able to do with pitchers. And Ray's stuff is just... It's so good and raw that if they're able to rein him in a little bit, like we're talking Garrett Cole 2.0 with him, and that would just be really fun to watch. It would suck as a Red Sox fan and probably ending up having to play them <laughs> at some point, but uh, just watching him finally like reach his max potential with somebody else would be fantastic because I'm a big Robbie Ray fan. But I think, honestly, they're probably going to make a, a strong push for Ray's teammate and Zach Greinke, who is also on the market and he's probably the best available pitcher on the market so it would make sense that team like the Yankees would go after the best available pitcher which is probably Greinke and um, they have said that they are not unwilling to move Andujar who obviously is not coming back this year but we saw what he could do last year Um, 30 homers 100 RBIs 280 average 290 average it was high uh, at 23 years old, so there's a pretty solid chip. Um, I know he's got labrum issues, so he's probably not a third baseman from here on out. But, I mean, that production at first base is still really good, and he's really young. So um, that's probably a solid piece that they have to move, plus their farm. Um, D.V. Garcia, or holding on to D.V. Garcia aside, so that's some pretty good names in it. So they've got some firepower to make a move. So I wouldn't be surprised if they went after Grinky. Um, I believe that Grinky has the Yankees on his no trade list, though. Oh, he, he could is. wave it. He could. I don't think he would. Um, 
I I don't know. So I actually think that the most realistic option for the Yankees at this point is Mike Miner from Texas because I think that he's more in their price range. Um, He's still had a a really good season. Um, But I I think that some of the other guys that we've talked about being available, you mentioned Trevor Bauer. um, Matthew Boyd has been another guy who's been talked about being available, but he has a ton of control left, so he's going to be super expensive um, and Detroit seems to have super high prices for all those guys. I And then Madison Bumgarner being off the market. I think that the Yankees' options are very limited. I would say that if I had to rank the two most likely at this point, it would be Miner first, Robbie Ray second. And I think that Ray would cost substantially more. Um, and, and I have heard some concern about Andahar that he has to be traded to an AL team if he were to be traded because defensively they're so unsure about him, even at a position like first base, that they feel like he might be limited to being a DH. Wow. Yeah. So I don't I don't know whether or not that's 100% or, or you know, totally valid, uh, but it seems like the rotator cuff stuff – uh, is less impacted by swinging than it is by anything else at this point. Hmm. All right. Well, let's just say if the Yankees do end up with Minor, um, I wouldn't be worried about that at all. I know he's having a good year, but I ain't scared. Yeah, and, and I, I think what this does is it really points out, like, the market for starting pitchers isn't that good right now, and it's expensive, and it's telling that if the the Yankees aren't willing to pony up a guy like Davey Garcia – they're probably not getting guys like Bauer and Boyd. Yeah, I think there's a lot of teams that are really annoyed that Cleveland is doing well because if they weren't and they were out of it, I mean, Bauer was rumored to be on the market. Kluber was rumored to be on the market. It wouldn't have shocked me if they moved Clevenger. Um, and they really kind of just went full blow up. And now they're competing, and now they're probably not going to trade those guys. I'm sure there's a lot of teams that were like – Man, it's a goldmine of a pitching staff that we'd love to pick apart, but not going to happen now. Yeah. By the way, I do love Davey Garcia. I think he's awesome. I agree. Okay. Um, All right. Where where do we go from here? Let's continue with our listener questions because that's where we're at. Um, We got a good one from Gordon Comstock that I really liked. Um, and he asks, how unreasonable is it to imagine Devers as being 90% of what Cabrera was from age 22 to 32? So first of all, Cabrera at 22, that was his 2005 season. Yeah. Um, and that would run through his 2015 season. Yeah. Um, so, so I did a little bit of research oh, on this. All right. Go for it. So, over the course of that 10 years, Miguel Cabrera was number one in war by Fangraphs. And 80% of that war would be still the third best player of that decade. So, the way I was looking at this question was how unrealistic is it for Devers to be the third best player of the next decade? Um, There's a lot of talent in baseball. And so, basically... Um, Trout's 27, Mookie's 26, we got Acuna and Soto and Vlad Jr. are 20. Um, 
there's so much talent. I think it would be a stretch for him to be that good over the next decade. But there are uh, surprisingly a pretty solid number of similarities between uh, what Devers is doing now and what Cabrera did consistently over that 10 years. And if this if Devers does this for 10 years, uh, then there's a real good chance that over the next decade he probably is that good and is like top three player of the next decade. But I think the it's so incredibly hard for anyone to be that consistently good. There's a reason why Mike Trout has been the best player in baseball for the past seven years, however long it's been. Because he is consistently that good and no one else is. It's just so hard to be that good for that long. Yeah, I, I wouldn't make any um, huge judgments on whether or not he can be that consistent, like you said, because Miggy really did do that for 10-plus years of being one of the best players in baseball. But I think that the similarities between their age 22 seasons are absolutely remarkable. Right. Um, <laughs> De- Devers right now has a 145 WRC+. plus. Um, during his Miggy's age 22 season, he had a 146 WRC+. plus. Miggy ended that year with 33 home runs. Devers has 21 right now uh, with still many games to go. Um, there's a good chance that Devers could beat him in home runs. Runs, He probably won't beat him in RBI this year, um, but he's going to be close. Uh, and in terms of the average in slash line, Miggy's slash line that year was 323, 385, 561. Um, the slash line for Devers so far is 329, 381, 579. So actually, um, Devers is having, in my opinion, a slightly better year. Um, than the one that Miggy had then. And we haven't even factored in the defensive value of uh, Devers, who's playing a more important position, third base, and he's playing it pretty damn well this year. So I actually, I really, really like the idea of the next 10 years of Rafael Devers. I think they're yeah. going to be some pretty remarkable seasons. And I, I love this comparison. The uh, the approach at the plate, too, um, and the just the discipline. In that 2005 season, Miggy had a 9% walk rate. Devers has an 8% walk rate. And uh, Miggy had an 18% strikeout rate. Devers has a 16% strikeout rate. And they they both had a ton of plate coverage, too, or have a ton of plate coverage, I should say, with Devers. Um, Yeah, I mean, this just goes to show you what type of a talent Rafael Devers is. It's It's incredible. It really is. This kid... He's got a chance to be the best player on the Red Sox. But if not next year, like definitely three years from now. If Mookie slows down maybe a little bit or Xander Bogarts, you know, he's already, I think, as good as Xander Bogarts right now. Yeah, I would agree. As a hitter, right? I mean, he's he's pretty close. Can you imagine a scenario where he's the best hitter on the Red Sox as soon as next year? Because I can't. Yeah, I think I can. I mean, he, he might finish this year as the best hitter on the Red Sox. He's not that far behind Bogarts at all. You're no. right. 
and it's it's interesting to see. Um, I'm looking at can I uh, whatever can't isolate this quickly, but uh, Trout obviously leading the league with a six point eight WAR, uh, and then the for the American League the next two it's Bogarts and Devers. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> that is very nice. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a chance. I mean, I would feel. Wow, I did not realize that Trout was already at 34 homers. He's Holy a monster. Crap. No, never mind. Neither one of those are going to catch him. Trout's got the MVP. But there's always next year. <laughs> well, Trout still exists next year. Yeah, I know. But I'm just saying, I mean, I'm looking at it now, yeah. and it's way too big a gap to make up. So next year when they all begin the season with a zero war, um, and they're you know they're tied with Trout for the best war in the league. Then there's a, there's a better chance. I just love how <laughs> uh, you know Cody Bellinger and Yellick are having these absolute dream seasons, and Trout is just having a Trout season, and he's better than them. Yeah, like <laughs> their dream season is Trout's regular season. My God, he's good. He's the best. He's already got six point eight WAR. Uh, he's on pace for the best season that Trout has ever had, um, or at least close to it. So, uh, love me some Mike Trout. How can he not? Um, we'll we'll end the show uh, with, with this question, just to put an emphatic uh, mark on it. CJ Roberts says, "Think the Sox make a move? Or are they going to roll with the team as it is? This team is making a move. I would be yeah. stunned. Yeah, especially now." Um, they've been very active in the search. I think it's going to happen. They're going to make a move. All right. Well, Keats, uh, much, much different tone this week. Um, yeah. And we, we hope that they can keep it going. They've got uh, Tampa Bay coming up here and then the Yankees again. So we'll see. Yeah, hopefully uh, people didn't shut themselves into a bunker after that Baltimore season and give up and they're still enjoying what was a really awesome week, and now we get to do it all over again with Tampa and New York. Yep, and if if they did, they they missed some some damn good baseball. Sure so. did. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We do appreciate the download. If you enjoyed the show, please go on and rate and review us. And you can follow us uh, on Twitter. You can follow Keaton at, at the Spoken Keats. You can follow me at, at Dev Jake, and you can follow the Over the Monster account at, at Over the Monster. And uh, you can subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to this now. You can subscribe to it. Um, I subscribe to it personally on iTunes, um, but if you have Stitcher or any of these other uh, podcast apps, we're pretty much everywhere out there. And if you have trouble finding us, just shoot us a message. Um, and as always, we appreciate the listener questions. So we thank you very much, and we'll be with you next week. 